the future of psychology is big teams working together to to solve a problem, to decide what exactly are the hypotheses, what are the predictions, and then different people working on aspects that they're expert at. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with James Heathers from Northeastern University and a very special guest, Lisa De Bruin, who is a professor in the Institute of Neuroscience and Psychology at the University of Glasgow and who also runs the FACE Research Lab. Lisa, thanks for joining us on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, yesterday I saw a tweet from uh, Hertz listener Deborah Apthorpe, who was uh, voicing her frustration. Yes, uh, former Sydney Uni uh, person as well. And she was voicing her frustration at getting SPSS to work on her Mac. Now, of course, people jumped in with the typical, oh, you should be using R type stuff. But as it turns out, Deborah knows R. But the problem wasn't that she didn't have an alternative option to perform statistical inference for her work. It was that, that she needed SPSS because that's what she was told to teach her students. Now, this is a common story that we've heard time and time again that it's too hard to teach R in psychology and the social sciences and we should stick to SPSS. But Lisa, you stuck up the middle finger to all the haters and doubters and you went ahead and actually (laughs) did this and put together a reproducible research course using R along with Dale Barr. Can you tell us the story behind this course and uh, your experience actually doing it? Okay. So first, there's a big team. It's not just me and Dale. Um, and in fact, I came to this pretty late. Um, Dale arrived here in like 2010, and he wanted to teach the third year stats course in R, but he was discouraged from doing so. Everybody knew SPSS, and they didn't think students could handle R. Um, so they told him that he could let students choose, though, if they wanted to learn SPSS or R, but students in his class could do either one. And for the first few years, only only a couple students chose R. Um, by, by 2014, the majority of students were choosing R, even though they'd had two years already of SPSS or Excel. Um, and the postgraduate courses, we were already teaching R entirely. And so the, a whole team of people, so led by Neve Stack, who's our director of learning and teaching, but don't use her acronym, um, started to overhaul the entire methods curriculum, not just to, to teach R. R isn't the main point at all. It's reproducibility in open science. So we were getting frustrated that students, even though they could do the pointy clicky in SPSS when they were following along in front of class, they'd forget how to do it when they went to do their, their coursework. Um, they didn't really have anything to take away with them except for cheat sheets that said exactly how to do exactly <laughs> one thing. Um, so we wanted them to be able to do reproducible science, and R seemed like the best tool for that at the time. Oh, I know you can do it in SPSS, and you can use syntax. People weren't teaching syntax. Um, And really, although the main thing is data wrangling, when we found that when they got to their dissertation, students would um, know what statistical tests they wanted to do. They would have their data files that came out of whatever software they were using to collect data, and they would have no idea how to get their raw data into a format where they could actually analyze it. Mm. So that was a big motivator for the change, is to emphasize reproducibility and emphasize data wrangling. And we use R as our tool for that, but I think you could probably use different tools. Um, So from about 2014, um, Dale started training the staff 
and how do they use R and getting everybody up to speed to be able to teach the undergrads. And we've changed the curriculum slowly, but now the curriculum all the way through from first year to fourth year, they learn entirely R. They don't do anything in SPSS. They don't even know it's really an option. <laughs> um, and I was just came from an undergraduate wine and cheese party where they meet potential dissertation supervisors um, and was talking to the level threes who really, really don't know anything else. Um, and was telling them how amazing they are. And they just, they don't see that. They think they're just doing a normal psych degree and doing normal psych things. And so I think all of our fears about how hard it would be, how they wouldn't want to code, you know, they don't like SPSS to start with anyway. Um, and I think this gives them so many transferable skills that we've been really happy with the change. This is incredible because we have this assumption that uh, they're going to prefer SPSS and prefer point and click and they're going to hate the idea of coding, but it just seems like it's not true at all, especially because you gave, originally you gave students the option and uh, some of them nominated to do R anyway. Yeah, indeed. One of the cohorts that was given the option to use either, a bunch of the students put together a petition and said that in level four, they wanted more advanced stats courses taught entirely in R. Wow. <laughs> and they got those courses. Uh, the power of a good petition. A petition is essentially an extremely well-organized complaint. I kind of like them. <laughs> That's good. Oh, I wonder if I've got a suspicion about this and you can tell me if I'm completely full of shit or not. I think that th there's this perception that's probably just a few years out of date that if you had to do something like that, you'd kind of be on your own. If you wanted to, to teach a course in that sort of format, you'd be just sort of, uh, you'd be doing everything from scratch yourself. But now there's kind of a sufficient user base and a sufficient amount of ways to address questions that come up and put everything in order that that's just not the case anymore. Right. I mean, Glasgow's not the first unit to um, switch their teaching over to R. Danielle Navarro's been teaching undergrads with R since 2010. Oh, her, text her textbook is amazing. Her textbook is so good. It's so that's how I learned R was from her textbook. Incredible. Yeah, no, I just want to copy the first few chapters um, <laughs> to replace how I'm teaching some of that. She's not using Tidyverse yet, but yeah, I'm collaborating that. a bit to help to help with that with some other people. Um, and also, University of Edinburgh started moving their methods teaching over to R the year before we did. Um, I think it's just that Glasgow, we've got a pretty committed group of people who like to tweet. Um, and also, we're committed to open science in general. Again, it's not just R. So we've been making resources available to people, and we're working on um, putting all of our undergraduate curriculum online as open source um, book down books. Wow. And is there, are you noticing a, a flow-on effect when, when it comes to other areas of reproducible science? I mean, doing statistics... And, um, and and data wrangling is just one part of open science. But are you finding it's making it easier to do the other elements or to actually introduce these other elements? Definitely. Um, I mean, you've probably tried to make a graph in FPSS, right? <laughs> James still does it. Daniel? Yeah. Daniel, I will walk to Norway and wound you. You take that back immediately. No, it's, sorry, it's Excel. It's Excel. Okay. Do we need stage and intervention? <laughs> well, we, yeah, we did. Sorry, to, sorry. No Norwegians are allowed to lie for the next week, and that includes him now. He can speak <laughs> fish. How dare you, sir? Sorry, Lisa. Go go on. Yes, I, ha I, have, I have done that in the past. No. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's hard. It gives you default graphs that are generally stupid um, and don't represent your data in any reasonable way. We use... Tidyverse, um, 
from the start. We don't teach them in base R from the start, but they just learned Heidiverse. So everybody knows ggplot, they start learning it in level one. And in fact, we don't really even teach them any stats until halfway through their second year. Mm. By the, the midpoint of their second year, they've just started learning t-tests. But before that, um, they work on data wrangling. So they're given messy data, not canned data. Mm. And then they need to think about how do we take data, put it into a format that you might be able to calculate descriptive stats? How do we visualize it? And so they're really good at that. By the time they get to the middle of second year, they're ready to absolutely fly with the general linear model. That and that's what we base clever. all our stats teaching around. That so it also gives, we can focus on probability, distributions, power, effect size, talking about all of that before they start learning about the inferential stats, really. Wow. It's, uh, it, it's turning, it on, t- turning it on its head because a lot of places, at least when I learned statistics, uh, we were taught first year by the statistics department. And uh, it, uh, yeah, that, that, it was correct what they did, but it w- wasn't great. And then all of a sudden, we, we were taught by the psych department. And uh, yeah, like you said, it was just a pointy clicky type SPSS thing and a way of just getting to the answers. So I think this way is much better. And it's just one of those things that quite often the way we teach courses is, well, that's how the last cohort did it. But when you sit down and think about with the, re- with the resources we have right now, um, how can we actually do this better? And it sounds like that's what um, uh, that's what you've done over at uh, University of Glasgow. So that's fantastic. Yeah. So the students do projects in a registered report style, which again I think is something that as researchers we all need to learn how to do. And it's great that these students are learning it from the ground up, and they just think that's how you would do research that you definitely always do your power calculations first. You generate simulated data. So we've got level two students simulating data um, so that they can plan out their analysis exactly before they start collecting. I saw that you were working on a package for that called FO. How's that going along? Why are you going to the trouble of of, of working on this package for, for running simulations? Well, I find myself needing to simulate data all the time when I'm working with students or working on my own research, um, if I want to submit a registered report or just pre-register the study. I need some data to work with to see how the analysis goes, um, make sure my code's not full of typos because it's always <laughs> full of typos. Um, so I'd started simulating data just from scratch at the beginning of every file and I'm you know, I'm doing kind of the same thing over and over again. So built myself some functions that I pasted in the beginning of every file, and then it turned into maybe I'll learn how to write a package someday, um, and maybe other people will find it useful. Which I think is how everybody starts writing packages. Mm-hmm. So my I and also I think it might be useful for there's some situations where you can't share data. I'm really pro open data, but sometimes we collect data, especially. Um, things that we do in my lab with um, hormone values. So we're collecting longitudinal hormone data in ways that might be difficult to fully anonymize. Mm. Um, but I could, if I can generate a data set that has all of the same parameters, the same intercorrelations, same means, same variance, um, and then provide that to people that they can at least test out the code using it. I think that's 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 so important because I, I have exactly the same issue myself. Uh, I work mostly with patients, 
And um, when it comes to, to, to these sort of privacy concerns, they're real and they're, they're, there's, there's something we need to respect. But if we can actually have a, uh, a, a set of data which actually has the same characteristics as, as the real data, uh, I, I think a lot of people, there's uh, a group who's doing this sort of stuff when it comes to census data. Um, okay. I think it's um, so basically they obviously can't share the raw census data, but what they're doing is they're they're creating ways of of, of simulating the the original data set, which has exactly the same characteristics. So when they're publishing papers, they can actually submit the the, the, the data or a simulation of the data. Uh, but yeah, I think this is really important work. And and some things like everyone says, oh yeah, power analysis is really easy, but it, it's easy when you're doing very oh. straightforward tests. But once you start getting into more complex tests, the only way to really do it is to start running simulations. So, there's a real need for this kind of stuff. Yep, absolutely. It was, um, we're lucky here at Glasgow, we've got great people who are working on methodology. So, Dale Byer and Christoph Schiepers do a lot of work um, advocating uh, mixed models. And when I came here, I realized it's probably what I should have been using all along through almost every study I've ever run. But then I have no idea how to do a power calculation. There's a few packages now, but you know, since I've gotten used to it, now all I do is simulate data and run my power calculations that way. Yeah, it's it's definitely definitely the way to go. God, it's also disgustingly responsible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it's well. If anybody wants to go and look through my OSF at the really patchy peer registrations and terrible data simulations that I ran five years ago, go ahead. <laughs> I'm still doing What's those now. Speaking of sort of patchy data and patchy script, uh, there's been a lot of talk online about this idea of having clean code and, and people are, are embarrassed. They're, they're reluctant to post their code because they think, oh, someone's going someone's gonna to laugh at it. Uh, it, it's not it's not clean enough. Uh, now, assuming that the, the code actually does what it says it does, what are your thoughts around this? Oh, dirty code is always better than no code. Um, I obviously, the cleaner the better, the more you can comment it, the better, but nobody generates a fully formed, perfectly commented, really clean script on a, the first go. Um, if you expect people to, then people will just not want to learn how to code. Mm. Yeah, I, I just, I, I, it's, I think it's the worst. You occasionally see it on Twitter, and you're like, I could, I could have written that in three lines. And I'm like, come on, th- this is not the way to actually encourage people to to be coding. If your if if your code you know gets to the same oh. conclusion, it's uh, it's poor form. Also, almost every time that somebody says that, the original person who took fifty lines to get there has reproduced the function that the other person is knows how to use. Mm, They've actually yeah. done a lot more intellectual work and really understand the underlying what's going on. And they've generated all the code that's in a function that somebody just happens to know what package it's in. Yeah, that's a very good point. And if it's, if it's not just a matter of we need to get to the end point, it's also partly a didactic exercise. Have you learned about it? Do you know how it works? Do you know what it is? Then, yeah, if that's dirty, then huh, be filthy. Yeah. <laughs> it's handy. And, you know, a, lot of, a lot of my early scripts have exact duplications of code, big chunks of it for analyses that are similar. Now I put that into a function and sorted out, and I didn't know how to before. But that's it's the learning process everybody goes through, and so you don't want to 
to derail people before they ever get there. Absolutely. I think I think the only risk of that is, um, and, and that, that's that's something that I'm figuring out how to do myself, is that when you are sort of duplicating those, that you're more likely to have a mistake um, if right. you're duplicating similar stuff. Uh, but yeah, I- I'm going through exactly the same thing now and slowly learning to, to do these functions to do um, analyses which are which are very similar, uh, very similar to one another. Um, but uh, now, when it comes to how you've been teaching this and, and teaching your your um, reproducibility course in statistics, with the benefit of hindsight, is there anything that you would have done differently? Um, say at the very beginning, I think. What we did was take the old SPSS lessons and just convert them to R. Mm. So with the CAN data sets, the data were totally clean, did exactly what you said they're going to do, um, and just reprogrammed them in R. And that was always meant to be a stopgap. But maybe doing that more consistently, thinking about reproducibility, not just what we used to do, but in R, um, would be useful. Really, I think everything that's that's happened has ended up in such a good place that I'm not sure I would, would tinker with it too much. Yeah. So another thing that we do do in the classes is live coding. And this kind of intersects with um, the dirty code bit is that instructors, when we're talking to the students, we're in front of the class with our studio up and we just code. Not for, We don't cut and paste from pre <laughs> pre-populated scripts so the students get to watch us it's hard oh yeah Yeah. they get to watch us typo i can't find commas i forget what this function does i start with the wrong function i have to look up the help i have to google things all the time (laughs) i cannot i cannot overestimate how much confidence it would give students to see you swearing under your breath and Googling function names and finding them on stack and going, oh, yeah, hang on, delete, 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 delete. Wait, let's do that again. We have that's, a giant poster oh. in the lab that's got one of those, the, the crowns on it, and it says, stay calm and Google it. <laughs> Keep calm. Oh, I know it's so many programmers who will admit to the, uh, just the the fiercest amount of continual Googling when they're trying to get something done that they've never specifically done before. What? Oh, my, it's so normal. Today I looked up. Today I looked up for approximately the seven hundredth time. Ggplot change legend title. Yeah, guilty. <laughs> I just can't remember it. But it's good for students to see this that. Even I'd consider myself a pretty good coder, and you know I'm constantly looking things up, constantly looking at help, hovering over things to see what's the order of arguments, what are the damn arguments in this one, and getting it wrong, and writing two or three lines of code, and then running it and double checking, does the data frame look like what I expect it to? Oh no, it doesn't at all. I turned that column into all nulls. And now I need to fix it. And so they can, you kind of model for the students that this is the process you go through to make sure it's right. You'll never just know it all in your head. I think that's so important. And I, I think a really big step forward when it comes to, to learning our learning scripting is, is, is figuring out how to solve problems. And uh, for me, one thing that really helped is actually going in and looking through the function to figure out what the heck is going on. 
um, and also ways of, search, of searching through Stack Overflow. But for you, like, was there a specific turning point uh, or, 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 or a particular thing that you did that really helped you when it came to actually figuring out these, these errors or uh, just getting out of places when you were stuck? Um, say, I've been coding for a long time in lots of other languages. I only actually started learning R five years ago. Um, and was kind of resistant to it because I took one of those R courses in the biology department where three days in, I still couldn't figure out how to load data. Oh. Um, and then we were analyzing the, the weights and lengths of squid, which is actually kind of interesting. Um, to me, I have a biology degree, but it was it was a bit abstract um, and wasn't really teaching me what I wanted to know. And so I, I left it for a few years. And then when I came to Glasgow and there were a few other people using R um, and we have a, a Slack group. So we've got an R Slack group for students and then we've got one for staff because sometimes staff are reluctant to say that they don't know how to do something in front of the students. Sure. They shouldn't be. Everybody doesn't know how to do things sometimes. Um, but having that community support was really, really useful and just got me over the hump of I can't, I don't even know enough to get started trying to figure out what I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it's a huge help, um, particularly having those people down the hall that uh, that are much more experienced. Uh, yeah, it, it's gotten me out of a few, a few, a few messes myself. Um, but the Slack group, I think that's really interesting. I've seen a few people that actually, uh, I mean, a lot of people are using Slack um, for their labs um, uh, or just, just for any sort of communication. But I've seen a few kind of support groups like this. There's like a, an early career researcher Slack, a young PI Slack. Um, I have, and uh, yeah, it, it's just a great way of, uh, of having that, uh, that community support there. Yeah, it's, um, we find now that when students post questions to, to the student Slack, other students will answer them. So the Excellent. staff don't even have to look at it. No, I think that's a, that's a great way of doing it. Um, I think, uh, yeah, and ma- mailing lists, they're, they're very old school, um, but some of them are actually quite good. Uh, I know the, uh, the, the meta-analysis R mailing list is fantastic, and that's how I've solved a lot of problems, mainly because the developer of, of Metaphor is basically answers every single question, and uh, he, he's amazing for that. <laughs> Well, we are going to take a very quick break and we will be back soon with more Everything Hurts. If you're enjoying Everything Hurts, there's a few ways you can support the show. You can support us financially on Patreon and you can join 80 other patrons who are getting bonus material. For $1 a month, you get the Everything Hurts newsletter and access to behind-the-scenes photos and videos via the Patreon app. For $5 a month, you get that plus access to an exclusive mini-episode released every single month. And remember, every single cent that we get over Patreon is going straight back into the show so we can cover costs and give cool stuff back to you, the listener. If you can't support us on Patreon, we'd love it if you could mention the show on social media. If you're listening to the podcast on your phone, pause the episode, take a screenshot and post it on social media and then get back to the show. As always, you can contact us with questions and suggestions over Twitter and Facebook, and you can find all these details in the show notes. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Everything Hurts. Today, we are speaking with Lisa De Bruin, and you can find uh, all of the contact details on our new website, which is now online thanks to our Patreon supporters. And we have a guest section, and uh, Lisa's bio will be up there, uh, which will also include links to all her social media profiles. What's your Twitter handle, Lisa? Is it Lisa De Bruin? One one word. Um, it's Lisa DeBryan, all one word. Oh, I've been pronouncing your name wrong. <laughs> I'm was, so sorry. I no. was just about to ask if he was saying your name oh. right, Lisa, because he has a I- funny habit of, uh, what's that one where you've got the letters and then you make the words and you get it wrong? Oh, yeah. Uh, being dim. <laughs> oh, no, I'm That's, so sorry. You're saying it like it's spelled. Um, and I only let the Dutch get away with saying it wrong. Because they swear it's well, they say it right, and I'm not gonna try to say it because I get made fun of every time I try to say my name the Dutch way. Uh, you get family. you get made fun of every time you try and say your own name the right way. Who's making fun yeah. of you? Well, du- when I say it the right way, the Dutch tell me it's wrong, and when I try to say it the Dutch way, they say I can't. I'm not pronouncing it correctly. Wow, I take back everything nice I've said about those people. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I I usually check beforehand the pronunciation, but I thought no, I've I've, I've got this, but no, another another strike. I'm sorry about that. Uh, but uh, there's no way to tell. Go on. No, there's no way to tell how it's pronounced. It's but it's De Brian, like the boy's name Brian. Ah, uh, okay. Well, we are we are speaking with Lisa De Brian uh, <coughs> about uh, about all things reproducibility, and uh, one thing I want to talk about is that um, with with the whole reproducibility reproducibility crisis, it's pretty clear that there's no single lab which is well equipped to actually determine the reliability and generalizability of psychological science. And in response to this, the the Psych Science Accelerator has formed, which is kind of like a CERN for psychology. And I know you're involved with this, Lisa. Can you tell us a little bit about the Psych Science Accelerator and, and what motivated you to, to join? All right. Um, I'll say I joined the Psych Science Accelerator because Chris Chartier was tweeting on the Twitter about how it would be interesting to get lots of people together and form a a uh, many, many research kind of thing where researchers didn't just get together for one project and then call it a day, but that there was a standing network and we could build on what we've learned about collaboration and keep going. And I thought it was really exciting. Um, and I've been working on some projects for a few years about um, how do you collect data online and organize large amounts of data and keep track of it across multiple projects. So I emailed him and said, you know, this might be of interest to you, and I'd like to to help out if if anything comes of it. And I thought, you know, probably nothing will come of it because people talk on Twitter a lot and <laughs> don't always organize. Um, but Chris is a one man powerhouse. He is an amazing organizer, and somehow immediately attracted like a hundred different labs who wanted to participate. Um, and so I was involved in the the organizing committee at the very beginning. We tried to figure out how are we going to decide which projects to use and um, how do we organize this whole thing. Um, and But my lab also submitted a project because we were kind of afraid nobody was going to submit any projects. And our project, um, it was written by Ben Jones and me. And it was selected as the first international project for the Psych Science Accelerator. So from the very beginning... We were pretty adamant that we wanted to um, fit with open science practices as 
best as possible. So we'd like to write it up as a registered report, um, fully pre-register all of the analyses beforehand. And people were a bit skeptical because it would might slow everything down. Mm. Um, but we did submit it as a registered report to Nature Human Behavior. Nice. Went through maybe three rounds of revision um, and the stage one registered report's being accepted. Hey, congrats. Yeah, mm-hmm. so we, we started data collection in December, I think. So to give, a bit of, to give a bit of scale, how many labs are involved and how many participants have you, have you, uh, are you anticipating? Um, let's see. The, we have more than 9,000 participants planned. So we're looking in, um, oh, goodness, now I should have looked this up. It's all online. I'm going to give you the links so that you can look at we'll stage one registered we'll- report. You can, people can check out the code. Um, you can even participate in the actual studies, like test versions of the studies hey. um, in all, I think, 21 languages that we've got right now. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. So, so I've got the list now. It's in Dutch, English, Farsi, French, Belgian, French, Swiss, French, German, Greek, Hungarian, Italian, Norwegian, Polish, hey. Portuguese, Brazilian, Portuguese, Russian, Serbian, Slovakian, Spanish, Peruvian, Spanish, Thai, and Turkish. God and damn. there's... One more on my list that I meant to do: Romanian. I need to do Romanian tonight. Are you are you ex- are you are you anticipating any um any cross cultural differences for you for what you're studying, or do you think this is actually going to be um this this is, this is going to occur uh, regardless of culture? Okay, well we're looking at the um, Osterhof and Tadarov model of social perception, which is that, like basically all the first impressions you make of faces if you look at somebody and decide, oh, they look nice or attractive or dominant or mean, all of those boil down to really just two dimensions, valence and dominance. Mm. But two pretty recent pieces of research, um, one from Claire Sutherland, who's in England, and one from Hong Yi Wang, who did a postdoc in my lab, um, looked at this in Chinese participants, and they both found that there was a valence component, um, but no dominance component. Instead, they had something that looked sort of like competence or intelligence was how people were were judging the faces. So we're pretty sure there are going to be cultural differences. But, you know, a cross-cultural study just looking at China versus the U.S. or the U.K. doesn't tell you a whole lot. So we're looking at 10 broadly defined world regions um, as a almost exploratory analysis. What kind of patterns do we see and do they replicate the original pattern that was found in the US and replicated in the UK? And then all those data will be public for other people to look at and develop hypotheses from if there are differences. That's that's uh, that's going to be super, super interesting. Uh, now, considering that you have, uh, was it 20 labs involved? Yeah. Thereabouts? You have 20 labs involved. Oh, obviously- no, that's um, 20 languages. 20 there languages? Are- yeah, there are more than 100 labs. I can't remember how many. Wow. I've got the website in front of me right now, though. <laughs> we have collected data from 2,380 people so far wow. out of the about 9,000. Um, oh, but, man. Damn. This is so just so coordinating, the way we need to do science. <laughs> yeah, so coordinating this has been a massive undertaking. Um, Chris Chartier has done an amazing job, and Nick Coles is our project manager for this project, mm-hmm. um, and keeping track of every lab, and do they have their ethical permission? Do we have record of it? Can they start data collection yet? Um, and organizing the people who are doing all the translations. So I said I'm you know, doing Romanian tonight. I don't actually translate <laughs> anything. I only speak English. Um, 
But so we have these translation teams of a translation coordinator and then two independent translators translate from English to the target language and then two more translate from the target language back to English. Everybody discusses where the discrepancies and then they're given to lay people to check what's their understanding of all the translations. And then the whole team figures out any other discrepancies. And then it's sent to all of the labs that might use that language to make any changes that are sort of, sort of specific to that particular region or that lab. What was your overall experience submitting that first page of the registered report? Um, so the, the registered report experience has been amazing. I think it's really improved the manuscript. And I know you kind of say that every time that you get <laughs> a review back and you, you say, thank you so much, editors and reviewers, for your comments. They have improved the manuscript incredibly. But no, like we super mean it this time. Um, <laughs> but really this time. We really, really mean it. Um, no, we got reviews back from um, Alex Todorov. So people have been signing their reviews as well who – but Tarov, who had written the original paper and the methodology that we're replicating. And we got great comments back from him about analyses and how, how we should use, the, or about the criteria that we'll use to determine whether or not things replicate. And two other reviewers have also actually gone through the code, which is, nice. yes, it's very nice. Um, I've not had that experience as much as I had hoped with you know, it's our lab policy now to provide um, code and simulated or pilot data with all registered reports and the actual data with all of our regular reports. And hardly anybody ever comments on the code or shows any sign of even seeing it. Damn. Um, um, well, have you, have you ever reviewed a paper where someone said, here's the code or here's the data, and then you go and follow the link and the link is either dead waiting to be established or like you have to identify yourself and log in to be able to get it yeah i, I, th I think i mean I, i've are, done that to other people once or twice back giving soon. it away and uh some people are not even giving it away properly they're just going oh, i'll just put any put any old link in no one's going to check <laughs> that's where everyone's heads at <laughs> that's happened to yeah. me twice no. But uh, I, I had that, and I spoke to the I spoke to the editor, and the editor told me, and basically it was OSF, and they they didn't they forgot to switch it to public. <laughs> I have done this before. I have a lot of sympathy for mistakes and simple mistakes, simple mistakes. Yeah, because you, you don't know that it's not public because you can access it yourself. Right. Yeah. So th those things get fixed pretty quickly. But for the registered report at Nature Human Behavior, the reviewers have been very thorough in going through the code, um, and helping us to make decisions that we need to make before data collection um, and make sure that they're sensible and agreed decisions. Um, it's also helped a lot to have, what is it, 180 co-authors or something? Um, there's been a core team that's been writing the manuscript. So it's Ben Jones, Jessica Flake, Chris Chartier, and me mm. who have written the core manuscript. But then once we have drafts written, it would go out to all of the co-authors. And then it's Ben Jones's job to amalgamate all of the comments. We thought about just having a Google Doc that everybody could comment on and decide that would just with so many co-authors would become unmanageable. Um, Ben's an amazing writer, and he's been really good at amalgamating the comments, 
and responding to people because, you know, with that many co-authors, people won't ever agree on everything, every choice that you make. Mm. And so that's been a learning process too. So is Ben going through a hundred Word documents? Um, People mostly just send back emails with a few comments. Okay, okay. Most people say, you know, it's everything's fine, but some suggest new analyses or um, different ways of framing things or suggest other um, things that we could cite. And he incorporates that and explains to people if there are decisions they think that they disagree with, why did we make those decisions if we think we shouldn't change them? Now, considering that you have uh, 100 plus authors, uh, one thing which uh, a lot of people within within at least our field have their minds on is is first authorship or the order of authorship. How are you solving the problem when it comes to, to crediting people for uh, for the work when it comes to these massive uh, massive collaborations? So, do you know about the credit framework? Uh, vaguely, but uh, if you could explain. Um say i can't say much about it off the top of my head besides it um it breaks down authorship roles into more specific categories so that you can assign each person um what categories were they involved in like data collection mm, okay, um, yep, yep. generating the code etc so we're thinking about authorship in in the format of these credit statements and who's contributed to what um but authorship order right now in the Psych Science Accelerator tends to go by tiers. So there'll be the, the sort of first authorship team, and they decide on their order. Mm. And then a group of people who did kind of the second most amount of work, and they'll go alphabetically within that tier, and then a third group of people. So it might be um, translators in one group, and people collected data in another group, and people who contributed to further analyses in another group. Um, and alphabetize them that way. Okay. Ideally, I'd like to get rid of authorship order entirely and just go to credit statements of here's everybody mm. in alphabetical order, but you know the, the the paper is for the team, and here's what everybody did. I mean, yeah, the the whole physics approach of just doing it alphabetical is is definitely definitely the way to go. So it shows you it's possible. It's possible that other fields have been doing it for for decades. Yet yet uh, we seem to be stuck in this. Uh, uh, this idea that we need to either be first or last or, or close well, to the front. Or, the people or who have all the power, Daniel, are the people who also generally care about where their name goes to get their special little job or whatever. That is true. That so, is true. you know, you're you're asking people to give something up that they already have. Are they going to be keen? <laughs> no. No. But I, I, I think doing uh, crediting, being very, very, being very, uh, very explicit about what each person did some journals are doing this, but I think it's it's a, it's a really good start, and there should be there should be a way of um of, of being more more explicit about yes, I have contributed substantially to data analysis for X amount of papers, and here is the evidence. I think that's nice to show. Just uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's going to require a big culture change, um, so that you know hiring departments or promotions take this into account, and they don't just go with authorship order. How many papers are you first or last author on? Mm. Yeah, would you rather say is a, a, a would you rather be able to say I am the first author, or would you rather have your explicit contributions made clear in the paper? I personally would rather have my explicit contributions made Me clear. Me too, no question. 
Especially, Mick, have you ever written a paper and you've got a third or fourth author or something and they're just sort of there, you know? <laughs> like Lisa, Lisa came up with the idea, pre-registered the thing, wrote the code, collected all the data, and then it comes to authorship four. And it's like, why do why do McWhiterson uh, contribution had kneecaps, <laughs> lived lived near paper? I mean, obviously, obviously, you could game that, but it's just uh, yeah. it, it makes also it makes sometimes it a lot more on explicit. these these big papers where there's a lot of people. Sometimes the fourth author did something absolutely essential. Yeah, totally. Agree. Research sometimes. would have never been done otherwise, and you just assume, oh, well, they're fourth out of seven; they must have done nothing. Yeah. And so, an explicit contributions are, are the only way to go. I think. That's nice. What what do are there are there journals in the sort of behavioral science et cetera and surroundings that are going big on that? I can't think of one. There's a few. I think the uh, the BMC journals are generally very. You have to be very explicit about what everyone did. Um, and there's a few. I can't re- remember off the top of my head, but there's a few where you have to be very specific about who who did what. And I once did it, and the editor came back to me going, "Not specific enough." I'm like, okay, <laughs> that, that's great. I thought that was I thought that was fantastic. So yeah. I had to go back and put a bit more detail into into what everyone did. Uh, but people are doing this, and I don't think this is much of a culture change at yeah. all. But think, yeah, and the credit guidelines just make it easier to figure out what are the right categories you should be using, rather than everybody make up their own categories. Yeah, right. And I pres- presume if you hand them, because you see that one sometimes where they go, who did what? And they're like, all authors contributed to all parts of this but manuscript. Come on. No, they didn't. Come on. No, they didn't. You mean you, either you couldn't be bothered filling out the form or you just don't have the wherewithal to start splitting people's contributions into what actually happened. That never happens. You get some sixty-five-year-old half-retired goon down there looking over your shoulder. You missed a semicolon. Fuck off! That happened. Uh, were we talking about something useful? I'm sure Lisa was. Uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, but I was thinking uh, about uh, graduate for... students, though. Um, it'll also require a bit of a change in how we we evaluate graduate students, because often. If they write a paper, they need to be first author and they, they need to say they did everything. Mm. And I think in training, nobody can do everything. And we need to value people who have specialized skills. Um, I think the, the future of psychology is big teams working together to, to solve a problem, to decide what exactly are the hypotheses, what are the predictions, and then different people working on aspects that they're expert at. Oh, mm. absolutely. It's, it's definitely the way to go. Uh, now, speaking of uh, of reproducibility, uh, I saw something online the past few days um, that everyone's been talking about, which is this DARPA project. Uh, I know, Lisa, you're involved with this. Is that right? Um, not in any fundamental way. Okay. I think my lab is signed up to do data collection, but we're, we're very involved in the Psych Science Accelerator, and I try not to overcommit. Okay, yeah, because it uh, and James, is this, is this something? This this kind of seems up your alley using uh, using AI to to try and um, predict the the reproducibility of uh. Well, I went to the little conference that they had a little while ago, which was centered around the kind of the entree to these popular topics, and um, I was in a a group looking at 
an automation of error detection with a bunch of other people who are all terrifying, of course. There's a preprint on that that you probably haven't seen because you ignore my work like the hard taskmaster you are. My my <laughs> official involvement is yet to be determined. So I can't tell you so anything because I don't know myself yet. Is it going to focus on like cognitive psychology or any particular area? Oh, I I don't have a clue. Obviously, okay. anything I'm involved with is going to be involved uh, in and around error detection related stuff. Um, I don't know. I think the overall focus is actually extremely broad. At least that's what I'm I'm led to believe. I'm st- I'm not sure what's been announced and what's current and what's working where yet. To be quite honest, I'm still trying to get to grips with uh, how it's all going to collectively shake out. Yep. Um, this is a fascinating section of the podcast where we speculate on tweets <laughs> that we've read but not deeply. <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean, where where would we be with that scuttlebutt? You know, acad- academics yeah, exactly. whispering behind hands is uh, it's 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 part of doing business. It keeps us healthy, keeps us young. Um, it is. I mean, it is it is hella exciting because I mean the 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 remit of the grant is very broad. It's a lot of money, and DARPA have a tendency to want everything to happen yesterday. At least that's my impression of the projects that I've seen. Is that they like everything to go a million miles an hour, work really well, and they want to sort of fully commit to any premise that they they try and take on. Um, uh, that is, yeah, a, I think uh, that one thing that we have learned from the Psych Science Accelerator is trying to start things too early is not good. Lots mm. of planning, you measure twice, cut once. Um, uh, you know, we, my grandpa used to tell so, me that. Well, it must have annoyed him when I didn't become a carpenter. <laughs> but the registered reports format's been really good for that. They oh, used to bet, commit yeah. to a data analysis. If we didn't do that, I can't imagine trying to coordinate with more than 100 co-authors. What's the right analysis to do after oh. we've collected the data? Oh, no. No, 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 no. That's, that's, that's full bad. That's, that's double barrel bad. Can you imagine? I mean, the edits are bad enough, but no. Hierarchical linear model, says author number 83. Fuck that. Not going to happen. It's so, it's so freeing because uh, we've, had a, we've had that experience. We didn't do a registered report, but um, we pre-registered our analytical plan um, for a paper that myself and James were working on um, and, and about 70 other co-authors. And uh, the comments, it's, just, it's been so much easier because no one's commenting on the analysis because we already agreed on the analysis and what we're going to do. Yeah. People are just, uh, it, it's been fantastic. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's an eye-opener because at the time I didn't know how to simulate data. And looking back now, I realized if I did, then I would have done a slightly different analysis. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, 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 we registered the analysis and, uh, and it's gone well, but it, it, makes, uh, it makes a big difference. Uh, now- I understand, Lisa, that you're uh, you're speaking at uh, an upcoming open science uh, workshop at uh, Aarhus in Denmark. And I know we have a lot of uh, Danish listeners. Hey, to love or dance Yeah, of course we do. I, I, I look at I look at the stats. Well, especially I look, at, all, all I look at them too, but I can't remember off the top of my head how many Danish people there are. Daniel, that's just oh. weird. They're they're there. Oh, I'll keep I'll keep a special eye on the on, on our Scandinavian 
Scandinavian listeners. Um, uh, but, uh, he's, but trying Lisa, to, he's trying to get people to pay for his junkets to Europe, Lisa. That's what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, James. It's our, is it our hoos? Yes. How do you pronounce it? Okay. Uh, so, you, so, you're doing a, a workshop there and you've got a great lineup of speakers, including um, Daniel Navarro, who we spoke about earlier. Um, friend of the show, Ico Freed, is also speaking there. And uh, Zoltan Deans, who's written a lot of amazing stuff and, and many more. What are you going to be speaking about specifically at this com- at, at, at this workshop? Um, I'm going to be speaking about collaboration and so mostly with, about the Psych Science Accelerator, but how large-scale collaborative projects can help us to solve some of the problems um, with rec- replicability and generalizability. Nice. We we will uh, we'll post a link uh, to that workshop, which will be which will be very handy. And uh, yeah, if I if I was in if I was in Denmark in in, in Copenhagen or Aarhus, I would uh, I would definitely go because it sounds like a, sounds like a fantastic workshop. Uh, now, before we finish our episode, we do like to ask our guests some uh, some quick fire questions, and we got two questions for you, Lisa. Dan, I want to ask you responsible questions first. Okay, go 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 go, James. <laughs> Lisa, go. what's Glasgow like? Actually, first of all, where are you from? I'm from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yeah, of course you are. Where I met Which you, where, where you told met. me that. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah like uh, 10, 10 points for top memory, James. I actually remember you telling me that. <laughs> now you said it. Okay, so I have early it onset dementia. It was super dementia. weird to go to a conference there. I bet it was. Damn. Um, I always found it really I strange. I stayed at my parents' house. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. In your old room? <sighs> uh, no, they've moved to house since I left. <laughs> uh. All right. <laughs> so, someone from Grand, what's what's Glasgow like? It's one it's place wet. in in the in the in the British Isles I've never been. What's it like? Especially, what's it like for someone from Grand Rapids, Michigan? Um, did you say it? damp? It's wet? Wet. Extremely wet. Yeah. Um, it rains all the time, but it never gets very cold. Hardly ever gets below freezing. Hardly ever gets above twenty, um, which is really different from where I'm from. But it's awesome for live music. So, like last week, I saw Low in concert, and um, now I can't even remember who I saw on Monday. Must have been a good gig. We're going to go see the Lemonheads (laughs) on Saturday. What was the first one? Who knows? I'll remember in a minute. Do Do you have students who you can't understand? (laughs) Be done. Glaswegians that I can't understand or you that I can't understand? No, obviously I'm utterly incoherent and bring very little to the table. We've established that long ago. I mean, do you have students who are – I've met uh, Glaswegians in Australia who were sufficiently Scottish that it it, it qualified as a kind of a a communicative problem. They were (laughs) amazingly Scottish. I was so impressed. You just get used to it. So um, Ben Jones is Scottish. He's from Glasgow. And I don't think I understood a word he said until we'd been married for like a year. <laughs> oh, that you probably wouldn't have sorted that out beforehand, but I, I take it that's uh, a comic exaggeration. He'll probably hear yes. this. She didn't mean it, Ben. He will. All right. Now Dan can ask sensible questions. Sorry, I have <laughs> intense curiosity about Glasgow. I don't know why. Someone from there, tell me why it's so fantastic. Dan, questions tell before us. I waste all Hit that time. Up. Okay, questions. Uh, first one, uh, what is one thing you've changed your mind about in the last few years in regards to scientific practice? All right. I was having to think about this the other day. Um, there's so many things I've changed my mind about. 
but a really salient one is um, research metrics. So it's, I guess, more about research culture rather than scientific practice. But the importance of research metrics like journal impact factor or H-index, I kind of stupidly really bought into that when I was a young researcher, that I should try to make my H-index as high as possible and publish in journals that have a high impact factor because this is important and some sort of meaningful signal about the quality of my science. And that is total bullshit, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, preaching to the choir here. <laughs> How, how are you going? Obviously, you, you come across people who, who, st who still believe that. Uh, how do you approach that? What do you, what, what do, you do? What do you, what do you say? Well, there's evidence that you can cite about um, you know, the, there's just really no evidence, actually, that the quality of papers is related to journal impact factor um, or the selectivity of journals related to their impact factor. There's just no good evidence that impact factor is telling us anything useful. Mm about anything. It's just probably distorting the scientific literature and how we make decisions. It, pr um, it predicts retractions pretty well. It does. <laughs> okay. All right. But that's probably not so, what you want. Th that's, yeah, that's not the evidence I think people are looking for. <laughs> it's it's so- Tough. I'm always paranoid because <laughs> I, I know some people uh, are completely- wedded to the idea and uh, I I've had conflicting advice. Some people when it comes to writing grants, they're like, you have to include the impact factor in the journals that, that you're that you're mentioning in the citation list. And other people are like, do not mention the impact factor. <laughs> so it's almost a roll of the dice. So hopefully you actually get sensible people that understand that it doesn't doesn't really doesn't really mean much. Yep. As I become older in my career, I find I've got more opportunities to to try to push this agenda of let's stop thinking about impact factors when we're judging new hires or postdocs. Oh, um, so true. I, I, I saw another tweet that's like, here, here are the here are fifty hires, and here here are the amount of cell nature science papers each of these hires had. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yep. it's uh, but things it's really like credit guidelines can can help us with that. Where yeah. instead of looking at the impact factor or what, you can say, okay, how many papers did they do substantial work towards the data analysis, and we can look at the data analysis and see if it's any good. Nice. Yeah. Especially when you're trying to prove that you've got the technical skills to do a job and then you go, here's the paper where I'm directly given credit for the technical skills, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I like that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's big. What's the other question, Dan? Go down, go down, um, go down, go down, go. What's one book or paper that you would recommend that everyone should read? Hmm. This might be a recency effect because I'd led discussion today at our methods and meth or our methods and metascience group that meets every Wednesday. I led discussion on a paper that I think has also changed how I think about a lot of things, how I think about null results. So the Lachin, Scheele, and Isinger paper on um, equivalence testing. So the mm. tutorial for equivalence testing, I think is incredibly important um, to think about how do we interpret null results? Is there any way not to prove the null, but to decide, make a decision that this effect is smaller than anything I care about. I'm going to stop this line of research. I'm going to give up on this hypothesis rather than just simply saying, oh, I tested 50 people and it wasn't a significant result. So who knows? Oh, it's, it's so important because what, what's the point of a hypothesis if you can't falsify it? And using something like equivalence testing uh, is, 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 is a fantastic way to do it. 
I, I I'm such an advocate for, for equivalence testing. I think I think it's it's uh it's just surprising it's taken so long to actually come across the psychology. It's been in in, in uh, um, uh, pharmacy or pharmacokinetics for for about twenty years, and all of a sudden we've we've rediscovered it. I think it's great. Yeah. Well, we had a good hour long discussion about how do you set the smallest effect size of interest. Oh, it's, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, so that's all not straightforward. It's easy to to implement equivalence testing once you've got your smallest effect size of interest, but deciding what that is. Every time somebody thought they'd come up with a good way, somebody else in the group shot it down. <laughs> so I think there'll still be a lot of discussion around that. But just thinking about what would it take for me to give up on this hypothesis, for me to decide that these two things are trivially different, um, that I can treat them as equal. Did, did you include equivalence testing uh, within your registered report? We have not because the actual analyses there are pretty complex. So we're doing principal components analysis or factor analysis. So we're replicating the original principal uh, components analysis. And then we have robustness checks because um, we think many aspects of the original analysis aren't ideal. So robustness checks with factor analysis and some other methods for determining whether the factor structure we get um, is significantly different from factor structures in other regions. Ooh. Basically, right. equivalence <laughs> testing is extremely difficult to, to do when you have something more complicated, say, than correlations, t-tests, ANOVAs. That's, that, that's uh, true. I uh, wouldn't even know where to start. That just hurts my feelings hearing all that. But um, we will be releasing, say, small amounts of the data at the beginning so that people can have a look at the data structure and pre-register their own equivalence tests if they want to <laughs> or any sort of analysis um and then when the full data set comes out go ahead and run it that's one of the best responses i've seen i saw someone on twitter and they were mentioning that um a, a reviewer kept asking him have you done this analysis have you done that analysis no this was dorothy bishop who said this and her, her response yeah. to the reviewer was the data is open and go just go do it yourself more more or less <laughs> <laughs> love it uh, uh, <laughs> we should have her uh, back <laughs> On, on that note, uh, we're not going to take up much more of your time, Lisa, but thank you so much uh, for, for joining us on the show. Hell all yes, thank you. papers thank you and all the stuff. No, no, not a problem. All the papers and all the stuff that uh, that you mentioned, we are going to add, um, add to the show notes. Uh, so, oh, yeah. I, want to, I want to give a shout out to our yes, undergraduate please. podcasting group. It's Psych Sock O'Clock. I guess they're on Anchor, but the undergraduates have gotten so into open science and psychology that they do a monthly podcast now too. Good Amazing. on We are going to link to that uh, in the show. And, and now, uh, now you know what it means. Rip into it. <laughs> and, and give it a <laughs> give, 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 and we'll, we'll give we'll give them a shout out on. Uh, are, they, are they on Twitter? Is the show on Twitter? Um, there's a few of them on Twitter. I'll send okay. you all their info. Send, send us your info, business. and we'll, we'll give them a shout out. Hell Love yeah. it. <laughs> okay. Until until next episode. Uh, thank you for listening to Everything Hurts. <laughs>